Galatians chapter 4, and I thought I would break out on a, the plan anyways, a three-week study on the doctrine of the virgin birth, and we're going to look at that in its, uh, its basic form and go down into some more detail that we would, we would do in more of a teaching session as we look at uh, this text from Galatians chapter 4 as our main text, but we're going to be uh, elsewhere tonight as uh, we get into this. But we've been singing these Christmas hymns, and uh, almost all, I think all of those hymns had at least one of the verses that talked about uh, the virgin and the virgin birth. And I want to say that this is one of those subjects that uh, is central to the doctrine of Christianity or the theology that is an absolute. It's something that's non-negotiable. Um, if you do not have a virgin birth, really a virgin conception, you really do not have a savior who has been free of sin and free of the sinful line. And so a very important study as we look at that. And we're going to read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 down to verse 8. Paul writes here, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. Father, thank you for the word of God and for the very real fact of the birth of Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for coming into this world at that appointed time. And Lord, as we open up your word tonight, we ask you to teach us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at this text that we're looking at, I'm going to try to do one of these topics um, over the next three Sunday nights. And then, of course, on Christmas being the fourth Sunday of this month uh, is not going to be, we're not going to be here. So I figured I'd do something for three uh, parts, but I want to look at the reality of the virgin birth and then the results of the virgin birth and then the reasons for the virgin birth. And um, we touch on these every year when we cover the Christmas story, but we haven't really gone in great depth in certain areas of study. We did, I guess, a few years ago on a Wednesday night, we were doing a study on the Apostles' Creed and and the statements found in the Apostles' Creed, which really is the oldest doctrinal statement of uh, Christians. Um, and, and in that, uh, is the defining part of the Apostles' Creed is that Jesus was born of a virgin and very important. It was something that was non-negotiable and believed way back in the very beginning, that dating to about the second century or various forms of it, about the second century when that was formulated as a means of telling people what you believe in a very concise, sort of memorized creed. And that's where that came from and has been adopted over the years. And it's good to break out sometimes and look down through those various doctrines, including this one, 
and understand that and kind of be able to formulate in your mind the reasons and the whys and all that. And the important thing is the reality, and that's what we're going to look at tonight, the reality of the virgin birth. Because here in Galatians chapter 4, and in verse 4, it says this, but when the fullness of the time had come, that means when it was the perfect time, God sent forth his son, and it says, born of a woman. All right? And the word that is used there, we'll talk about it in a little bit. Actually, it's in the King James. It says, made of a woman. And I, don't, I think that that uh, is a better word translation of the word, although most often the word that is found here is translated born. And it is a Greek word that is very specific, but it carries with the idea of not just the birth, but the whole process of the birth as the manufacturing, if you want to say, because that's how the word could be used. And it really uh, can be summed up that God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman. All right. And it's unique in the sense, and we'll we'll talk about this more, uh, because uh, what God says about this and what he doesn't say about it is important. All right. Now, the virgin birth is important. I I think when you look in the context of our culture today, uh, I read recently, this was a survey from just a couple years ago, about 52% of Americans, in that survey anyways, uh, said that they believe in the virgin birth. Uh, that's pretty high, I actually thought, because I didn't really think there were a lot of people that did would believe that as a doctrine or, or as a at least something important, but it did. But I was amazed that just in the space of less than 20 years, 18 years, the survey that I read before that, back in 2004, had it closer to 75% of Americans. And in that course of you know 18 years, or from our time now, it was only about 15 years from that survey, uh, you, you have a, a drop in that. And I would dare say in the last couple of years it's gone further. The millennials and those that um, consider themselves non-religious, which is ever-increasing around us, do not see that there's any really need to celebrate Christmas whatsoever, and the notion of a, a virgin that would conceive and have a baby. Uh, it's, you know, something fun to celebrate at this time of year, but it isn't a core belief that they think is important, including some that are in, in the church. Um, and I say that because uh, there are lots of, well, you could look it up, but there are lots of uh, even big-named people out there, not so much in our circles, but that would... Um, hold to not a literal virgin birth and that's something that um, some of them who just say well we can't explain it so therefore we don't really believe it (laughs) think about that right something you can't explain and you don't believe well there's a lot of things I can't explain but yet uh, for instance I can't explain God can I but I believe in God Uh, and I can explain certainly the reasons I believe uh, in that it's not a blind kind of faith but anyways back to this verse God sent forth his son born of a woman Uh, a very important verse of scripture and I think in evermore we need to be studying these things out Uh, John MacArthur who quotes Dr. Walverd who uh, John Walverd who was I think uh you know, one of the foremost theologians of the 20th century into the 21st century here, I think, anyways, he, he's been gone for quite some time. Um, 
But he talked about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. And he said this, The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. And upon the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. And, uh, you know, when you often think about it, we spend about a month every year talking about Christmas. And in that, we have a few messages, and almost all of them, you know, work that in somewhere. But the reality is that it's so much bigger than that. That the virgin birth, the virgin conception of Jesus, um, the fact that God made a body for him in a virgin's womb, is so much bigger that all of Christianity hinges on it. I think that if you were to deny the, deny the virgin birth, you're really devi- denying the word of God and you're denying the faith. It's that important. Well, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Now, I want to say this, that um, it's, it's not unique in that God has, it's unique in, in the sense of the virgin birth, but miraculous births are not necessarily unique alone with Jesus. So you think about the scriptural examples, and I, I know of at least four that I can think of right off the top of my head. You have, of course, Abraham and Sarah, and that one back there in Genesis 21, Isaac is born to a man who's 100 and a woman who's 90, right? And past childbearing years by far. And God supernaturally intervenes and Sarah conceives and they have a son. And then there's Samson, remember? Uh, He was born to Manoah and his wife and they were barren. And except God had interceded, they would not have had a son. A miraculous birth in that way. And how about Elkanah and Hannah, right? They have Samuel. And here's Hannah, she's barren, she cries out to the Lord, and God answers her prayer and has uh, Samuel. And then, of course, the one we talked about this morning, Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? And they have a son named John. So there were definitely unique times where God miraculously, and and by way of a sign, had these things, um, the circumstances around these births done in such a way so that you could not say this was in the flesh. It was definitely supernatural in nature. However, when you come to the birth of Jesus Christ, and really I back it up to say the conception of Jesus because we know that life doesn't begin at birth. Life begins in the womb, and I believe it begins at conception. And we won't go into all the details of how exactly that happens, but I find it, again, such a wonderful uh, mystery that a man and a woman can come together and they can spring life out of that intimate relationship and i think wow only god could come up with those things and to begin with how life can spring out of two people coming together and yet when you come to the birth of christ you don't have a man involved unique one of a kind never been done since or before and that's why i say it's very important that we look at this and i i like what the king james says when it says made of a woman made under the law the idea of made and it's this greek word ginomai and ginomai and it literally means to be born that's how it's more often translated and almost all the translate actually i think all the translations i looked up about five or six translate it born all right including the new king james and only the authorized version has it made but the word underneath it is 
more than just being born, the idea, and again, in ancient times in the Greek language and in the Hebrew prior to that, there was this belief that you were knit together. And that word kind of means that, that you're made. And yes, it is determined when you're born that there you are, a living, breathing person. But nevertheless, you didn't begin right at birth. So I like the word made, how it's used there. But ginomai, and it means to be born, to become, to take place, to make, to manufacture. It can be used as a, something in the process of making something by design. And all of that is wrapped up in that word born, that word made of a woman. And again, I said it's important the fact that what is said and what isn't said. It doesn't say made of a woman and a man. Now, you would say that about me and you and your kids and grandchildren and whoever else. You were made of a man and a woman. But not Jesus. Not the eternal son. <clears throat> the word is also used in John 1.14. The word became flesh is that same word. Ginomai. And it means to put together. Jesus became flesh. And he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. And it's interesting here because the, what wrapped up in John 1.14 says that the Son, the Word, okay, became flesh. That idea of being made, right? According to Zechariah uh, Zachariah in, the, in the Bible, it says that a body you have prepared for me. God prepared a body, all right? God the Father specifically. And you have, he is the only begotten. And that word is monogenes, monogenes, excuse me. And it means just that, one and only. And you notice the last part of that, the actual root of that word, it's the similar root to this one right here, uh, genomai, all right? It is very, very similar. It actually comes out of the same idea, except this one, when it comes to only begotten, it says he was made, he was born, he put on flesh, but he's unique, he's one and only. Mono, meaning one, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is. He is unique. He's the only one of his kind <laughs> in that way. And yet, Fully human. Fully human. Well, the, that word is also used here in Romans 1.3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born, look what it says, of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now again, the usage of that word just in the English, in the context in that verse, shows that it's more than just the birth. It's actually the whole formation of that person and yes, they're numbered at birth, but it was in the line of David. In other words, in David was the seed that would eventually help produce the Messiah. By the way, David is in the lineage of Mary, or vice versa. Mary's in the lineage of David. She came after. And by the way, so was Joseph. Although Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, he was the legal father on this earth, and he also was in the lineage of David. We have two genealogies in the, 
in the Word of God in the New Testament. One is the line of Mary and one is the line of Joseph. And both go back to David. That was important. Why? Because the Messiah was prophesied to come out of David and his seed. And his kingdom would have no end. Very important. There's only two surviving genealogies, by the way, that predate, for Jews anyways, that predate, definitively predate, um, the destruction of the temple records of 70 AD. And they're found in the Bible. And they're the genealogies of Jesus Christ. There's only one Jew today who can, with definitive accuracy, say he is a descendant of David and it's Jesus. That's why I say the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. Had to, just in history. The Bible says he came at God's perfect appointed time, the very moment in time. And that's in keeping with the biblical record as well. Born there in, you guessed it, it is that same word, uh, ginomai. You come to Romans 5.12. And I want to move on because uh, uh, the descendants of Adam could not be... The, the, the Savior could not come out of the descendants of Adam. And this is where the Bible says this. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. We know that sin is passed on through the line of your earthly father. Now, it doesn't mean you didn't learn how to sin from your mother. You might have. But... You actually receive, according to the scripture, inherent sin through the line of the Father. in What you inherit, right? And that goes all the way back to Adam. And sin was the repercussion of his disobedience, or that was the, the name of his disobedience. And the repercussion was that not only did Adam uh, become a sinner, but all his descendants became a sinner. So you see where this comes in. The Messiah, the Savior, had to be somebody who had really human flesh, because only someone of our own kind could save us, but he couldn't be from Adam. He had to be different, and he was. In Genesis chapter 3, you get the first hint of the virgin birth. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is after sin has come into the picture, and God tells Adam and Eve, you know, we have sin, and then just a few verses later, we have a promise. And it's what they call the first mention of the gospel. And here the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, referring to the devil, all right, Satan, and between your seed and her seed. And you notice in this translation, anyways, that the word seed there, second one, is capitalized. It's reference to a person and understood in the text of someone who's going to come from Eve in her line and is going to bruise, as it says here, it says, He, Satan, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, excuse me, the other way around. He, the, the Messiah, Savior, shall bruise his head, referring to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. The most that the serpent could do to this one of the seed of the woman was to bruise his heel. And I would say this, that certainly Satan has been nipping at the heels of uh, the line of the Messiah, the, the seed of the woman, ever since that time. And he, the worst thing he could do at the cross when Jesus died for us 
was bruise his heel. Even in all the horrendous agony that Jesus faced on the cross, it was nothing more than a bruising of his heel in comparison to what he defeated at the cross and through the resurrection, which is crushing the serpent's head. And that is yet also future, but it is a promise that is is in stone. It's done. And it comes from right in the very beginning of the Bible. And it's interesting, again, it says her seed. It doesn't say his seed. Often you think of the seed as actually something referring to men. Or, you know, they have the seed. Although the word in Hebrew means offspring. But um, it's an interesting word that they chose in the translations of this because it's the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. And that's what's going to happen. That's a reference And by the way, God didn't say to the people back then, including just Adam and Eve then, how he was going to do that. He just said, trust me. And you know what? He's said that all those years since that time. He's just said, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And as he gave more and more revelation, that revelation helped fill in more detail. But he says, trust me. In today, on this side of the resurrection, and this side of the virgin conception, we look back by faith and we see what God has done. And we have more detail than Adam and Eve had, more detail than the prophet Isaiah had. We have more detail, really, than um, the, the people of Jesus' day when he was born, because we have the rest of the New Testament. And we have all that. And it should help us even more believe on the lord because we have more of the written word of god interesting with that and by the way science also um backs this up somewhat you know if you've ever read or studied anything on dna that uh, we inherit um genes right from our father and from our mother um and also from our ancestors which were passed down to your father and your mother and and you get that and that's why dna is very specific every person has very unique dna all of us and identical twins would have the same dna um, but even as they go through life that changes somewhat their rna markers change and all kinds of stuff but we're really truly unique every one of us and this one thing that is that is similar though to all of us Um, On your mother's side, you inherit what is called mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA um, doesn't change much at all throughout the generations. And you can actually trace mitochondrial DNA back to a common ancestor. By the thousands of generations, they can do that going back. They call it a haplogroup or maternal haplogroup. And they can figure out the oldest piece of mitochondrial DNA in your genome that matches that ancestor. And they found out, and it's over and over again, they found this out in the late 60s, that we have a common woman in our, in our ancestry all across humanity. Now, they haven't figured all that out. Of course, they don't know because they don't look at the Bible. But the Bible tells us we all come from Eve. Names her. And you know, science to this day understands even that there is a common ancestor that we come from. Really common ancestors, and we know, Adam and Eve. I think they get the timing wrong and the dates wrong, because as they 
look at the differences in those changes that periodically take place and all that. They come up with a lot longer time element than is necessary, um, but that's a matter of interpretation is what that is. But the basis of it is, is set. And I also would say this, <clears throat> in your genes, all right, you are, as they say, sometimes your genes determine how you're going to be healthy and what diseases will form. And some of the traits you will have, all of that, and they can study those things out. And I would dare say this, in your genes is the curse of sin. Scientifically, it's there. You will undo eventually. And they talk about these teleomarkers, which are the strands on the end of your your DNA, and as it replicates, every time it replicates, they get shorter and shorter and shorter, and you can determine on the length of those how much a person can probably be expected to live generally if they don't get run over by a bus or something like that. And I say this, we were born, even conceived, and we're conceived, the Bible says, in sin, and part of the curse of sin is the wages of sin is what? Death. Not only the the practice of sin, which we're pretty good at, but the inherent nature of sin, I would say, scientifically, is that there's evidence for it right there. And why do we get diseases like cancer? And why do our, our, our bones start to wear out at a certain time and our hearts and those things that take place? And some of it is attributed to our environment and diet and all that. But sometimes, you know what, it doesn't matter. A lot of times it's just the way we're made and we are born in Adam's race, and we need someone who can fix it. But not just physically, spiritually. Because the soul, which is eternal, the spirit, which is eternal, is also lost and was cut off when sin entered into the picture. Anyways, that diagram just sort of explains a little bit about mitochondrial DNA and how from one woman, one woman so many can keep that marker throughout um, throughout those things anyways that's the way that works all right i want to go back on to this term the virgin because we come to the book of isaiah and in chapter 7 verse 14 this is a very important thing and this is a messianic psalm or a messianic passage excuse me and it explains to us that god is going this is 700 years before the birth of christ that god was going to give a sign and that sign was very specific and he says here in the English, this is the English translation, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Adonai himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. By the way, the word Emmanuel means literally God with us. Very specific. But it says here, a virgin shall conceive. Now the word in the Hebrew is Alma. And it means virgin, and it can be also used of a young, marriageable woman. Um, in Old English, we would say maiden, right? Um, in Russian, we'd say divoshka. And then there's, for, for a young woman who is not married, um, and the idea also a virgin. And then zhenshina would be like a woman who's married. Babushka's grandmother, so... That's right. So you have those words used in like Russian. And French probably has the same things, I, I'm guessing. And I don't know. Do we have? Probably not. But um, like Frau and Fraulein, right? It, yeah. And so you have two sort of variations there in German as well. But anyways, 
Um, I say that because words describe are used to describe someone. Now, when we read it very simply in English, a virgin shall conceive. And someone, and the skeptics do this all the time. They come along and say, well, that word can mean just a young woman. Well, I would just say this. How many young women do you think have babies in the time of Isaiah? A few. How many young women? Probably a lot. How many young women have babies today? A lot. There are millions and millions being born every year from young women, probably in their teens. All right? And that's not much of a sign, is what I'm getting at. So it would be just like, okay, whoopee ding, you know, to say it in plain English, a woman had a baby. But that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that, I would just say, in the context on its surface, not just the word origin, but the context of its surface, is that it had to be a special, unique thing for Isaiah to include it here, for the Lord to speak it, and Isaiah dependent, that someone was going to conceive. It wasn't just a young woman. It was a woman who had never known a man. And by the way, of the usages of the word Alma in the Old Testament... Um, almost always it's exclusively through the context of it determined to be a virgin all right someone unwed and someone who is not known a man sexually in the new testament you come to the context like for instance uh, we were in this passage this morning luke chapter 1 verse 26 now in the sixth month the angel gabriel was sent by god to a city of galilee named nazareth to a what virgin betrothed to a man whose name was joseph and of the house of david and the virgin's name was mary now the word that is used there for virgin and by the way later on and i I pointed this out this morning um the angel tells mary she's going to have a son she's going to conceive behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name jesus literally salvation yeshua That's the word that is used there, Jesus. And then it goes on and says he will be great and he will reign over the house of David. And then you come to verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And I pointed it out this morning. It would be pretty fruitless to argue with an angel who's bringing you God's direct revelation and to say, um, to try to pass off a, a, a hoax by saying, well, I'm a virgin, and they weren't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So the reality is, Mary, just by the very fact of her answer, is being truthful about her own chastity. She was a virgin. Very clear. And the word that is used in this uh, context is the word parthenos in the Greek. And this is the word that Luke chooses very clearly. And it is always actually of the 14 times it's used in the authorized version um i think almost all of the time i can't remember exactly it was 11 times it's in the context of someone who is sexually pure or chaste now let's back that up a little bit you go back to isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and you have the word virgin about 300 years or so just a little over 300 years the 250 you know to 300 the jews set out to translate 
their Bible of Hebrew and, and a few passages of Aramaic, but basically into the Septuagint. It is often uh, referred to in, like if you read about Bible commentary, you'll see the um, citation LXX, all right, uh, which is 70, okay, in Roman numerals. And that was a reference to the Septuagint. That's where the word sept comes from. And the Septuagint was the Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, because they were influenced by Alexander the Greek, and he came into that culture 330 uh, you know, B.C. or whatever uh, or so. And he influenced them, brought the Greek language to the Jews. Now, they still spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, but they decided in the cultural influences of the day to translate their own Bible into Greek which is a very precise language, actually, because Hebrew is more of a flowery language and has a lot more poet, poetic nature to it. Um, it's easier to sing, all those kind of things. Greek is a very precise language. Imagine the task that it would take. The best people to do that would be Jews who understood both languages, and so they set about um, to translate their own Bible into Greek, and they did it, and it is called the Septuagint. We have portions of the Septuagint from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 1940s there, late 1940s in Quram. And uh, we know that, and we have the surviving, obviously, uh, uh, copies thereof, you know, from the Septuagint. And you can look at the Septuagint. When the Septuagint authors, or translators, that is, came to Isaiah 7.14, they chose the Greek word Parthenos. Very specific word that in Greek always refers to a virgin. So I would say this. The Jews of at least the time, just a few hundred years before Christ, believed that that verse had to be a virgin from Isaiah. And when you come to the New Testament and where that is quoted, again, it is quoted um, as, as such, like for instance from Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, as his mother Mary was betrothed of Joseph before they came together, that means came together intimately, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. And but, skip to verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want to say this, that um, when Joseph was thinking about putting away his wife privately, he wasn't in on the big picture yet. Neither was Mary, really. This is all pretty simultaneous. She's now been found with child. She knows because the angels told her how come. Joseph doesn't. Joseph is thinking... My future wife, because they were betrothed, has violated the covenant we agreed on as we came to, we, we expect to consummate this marriage, come together in marriage, and now she's found with a child. She's been unfaithful. So he decides, in accordance with the, the law from Deuteronomy, that he's going to give her a writing of divorcement, he's gonna, which God allowed under Moses. And I would say... Um, that doesn't mean that God doesn't hate it. He does. 
But nevertheless, from their perspective, he gave that writing of divorcement. So here's Joseph. He's trying to do what he thinks is right, the only recourse he has, the woman he loves, the woman he has given his affection to, and has yet to become intimate with, has now been found, in his mind, unfaithful. But she's not. We know, because the angel tells Joseph, that that which is of her is born, is, is this, uh, again, of the Holy Spirit, Very important in these things. By the way, again, back to that word, um, the word parthenos, and it's used always in connection with a woman who has not had sexual intercourse with a man. And as you go through this, you have Joseph who immediately, he thinks of Mary and he wants to take, you know, take her as his wife, but instead he, by revelation of God, comes to the understanding that this is not man's doing, but God's doing. Very important. And so as he does that, and I I go back to that text, and she, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. There it is again, Yeshua in the Hebrew. Um, He is the one who is literally salvation. His very name carries with it the idea of why he came. Not just the idea, but the fact and the reason and the mission of why he came. You were in his name. And I was in his name. And Joseph and Mary. Because we all needed a savior. We needed salvation. And God said I'll send you salvation literally. For he will save his people from their sins. And so all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets saying. And now he quotes. Behold the virgin shall be with child. And bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Again, this verse from Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. And it is, again, the word, uh, the Greek word Parthenos, which is virgin. So for the skeptics who want to at least argue it out of the text and say, oh, it only meant a young woman, didn't mean that. They really are denying the fact of the, even the language of it and the context of it, I think, which has been very clear. And again, as I said earlier, it would not be much of a sign for just a young woman to have a baby. But it certainly would be a great sign, for, and a unique sign, and something of God if a virgin conceived and had a baby. Well, and then again, verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife, And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And it's important that the Bible says that he was born of a virgin also. And you know what? Even after Joseph took Mary to be his wife, he did not know her intimately until at least after Jesus was born. Again, in keeping with what the scripture said. She was a virgin when she gave birth as well. Well, next time we'll look at the results of the virgin birth, and that's going to even be much more extensive because we deal with the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, the hypostatic union. Yes, sir. You got it. I knew it. I love it. Uh, But the hypostatic union. And uh, we're going to look at that because that's quite a study as well and the theological implications of that. So let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. Grateful for the word of God and every word that's in the word of God. 
Thank you for the preciseness of the Greek language. And, and Lord, for the very fact that at a very perfect time you came into this world when there was a language so precise. That you remove those questions and doubts and other things, O oh Lord. And yet you take the affairs of man and the kingdoms of this world and you orchestrate them in such a way that the very things would be in place for when Jesus would come. Thank you he was born of a virgin and that you were able to come into our race, the human race, and save us from our sins. And we just thank you for that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.